when I was growing up, um, I, uh, we, about fourth or sixth grade, we lived in the state of Washington, and uh, one of my favorite places to go. Uh, speaking of Washington, before I get to that story, um, just make a, a simple announcement real quick for you ladies, just so that you know, and for the church to know, it's pretty, I'm honored and humbled that I was called uh, last week to, as a second string, but I'm honored to be part of it as the uh, Pacific Northwest Women's Retreat up in uh, the Seattle area at the end of the month. I'll be their keynote for that. So I'm really, really, um, really grateful. Yeah. You know, us second stringers, we'll take anything we get, right? It's like they, they had another speaker scheduled, but um, uh, something had happened in her family, and they honored that and, and gave her that grace to bow out. And, and uh, then uh, Gray Gee, our superintendent up in the Pacific Northwest, called me last week. So, um, just to keep me in your prayers for that, that, uh, that those ladies would be ministered to. Um, excited about that opportunity. So, going back to Washington State, that's what made me think of that. Um, going back to Washington State, uh, fourth or sixth grade, we grew up there. And when we moved up there from, the, um, from California, so I was really born here, for the most part raised here, but for two years lived up in the Seattle area. So moving from California, dry, desert, brown, hardly can grow anything without a lot of work and paying a lot of water, money for water, right? Um, moving up there, the first shock of all shocks was that, that people referred to blackberries as, anyone know? A weed or the scourge of the earth is what they called them. And, you know, coming from California where, you know, berry picking is like a field trip, you know? Like that's like a big family day if you could go somewhere and pick berries together. And, I mean, I remember just all of us thinking, why would you call blackberries the scourge of the earth? Well, until you realize that, uh, that they entangle themselves into everything, right? And, and they have uh, thorns on them pretty big. And so you're constantly getting scratched by them all the time. And the other reason that they call them the scourge of the earth is that they grow everywhere, um, even where they're not wanted, even unwelcomed. They, they grow. They take over if you're not careful. And so they call them the scourge of the earth. Now, um, the same can be said about the gospel, that no matter how unwelcomed or how unwanted it may be, the gospel is unstoppable, right? That's what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. Remember our theme? Anybody know it? Anybody remember it? What's that? Ruth and Sims is the name of our sermon series, yes. And the theme of the books of Acts is the unstoppable progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ through his church by the Holy Spirit from Judea to the ends of the earth, right? Yeah. The unstoppable progress. This is the gospel. And unfortunately, I would say the world, before God opens anyone's eyes, before God gives them faith, they might see the gospel as a scourge of the earth too. They don't value it. And yet, it just keeps expanding and increasing no matter what comes against it. And so as we continue our sermon series, as Judy pointed out, Roots and Stems, the study of the books of, of Book of Acts, we, we saw the first three chapters were really pretty exciting. Lots of signs, wonders, Pentecost, I mean, good things. The number are multiplying from a few faithful followers of Jesus that wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to, to now thousands. And then you hit Acts chapter 4. And you start to get persecution and suffering and threats. And it becomes a different story. 
Max Lucado says about Acts chapter 5, he says, despite all opposition and threats, we find the early church preaching the gospel authentically, abundantly, and adventurously. See, despite all oppositions and threats, the, the lives of the apostles were, were really one hair-raising adventure after another, right? I mean, pretty exciting stuff that they got to witness. But it wasn't always fun. But they never stopped, see? They were relentless, right? They never gave up. They never backed down. They never were intimidated. They kept going with the message of the gospel. Why? Why were they relentless? Because the gospel is unstoppable. It drove them. The Holy Spirit drove them through it. So as we'll see in our key spiritual truth, I believe it's on the top of your note sheet there, Today, as we look at our text, we're going to see that when we are about God's business, or when you or I are about God's business, there'll be no stopping his plan, you see. It's a great comfort to us today. It's a great encouragement that no matter what comes against us, inside or outside the church, when we're about God's business, there's no stopping his plan. Amen? That's going to be our overall take-home Today And I'm excited to share that with you as we look into the Word. If you could open up to Acts chapter 5. We're going to finish Acts chapter 5 today. I know. What does that mean? 23 more chapters, 22 more chapters to go. I know. We may finish Acts by next spring. Maybe Easter we might finish it, right? Goodness, I'm sorry. It's not my fault. It's the Word. It's so rich. We cannot skip over any of it. It's just exciting, especially as we track the roots of the Christian church, and we find ourselves in it as well. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 17, and I'm going to read down to verse 32. Then the high priest and all his associates, now wait, there's a then, right? So we got to look back, what's the then? The then, if you look on verses 12 through 16, the then is that the apostles were performing many miracles, wonders, preaching with power. I mean, as I did my research for it, it said that people who weren't even interested in the message of the gospel just wanted to come and see the wonders that were being generously given out. It says that when Peter walked by someone, that if his shadow fell on them, they were healed. God was generously just giving out wonders and power and healing. And they were preaching. And the sick were brought to them and they were healed and crowds gathered in verse 16, crowds, ga- crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Remember what it says, that crowds gathered. That's our key sign for verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, remember that's the leaders of the church, basically, the council, were filled with jealousy. Remember the crowd. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Did you get that? Go stand in the temple courts. I'm going to deliver you from jail. I want you to go back to what you were doing. Don't run and hide. And now I want you to tell them the full message. See, God says, you're not going to back down. Now you're going to give them more. That the more resistance they get, the more power and, and the, the fuller the gospel message they're going to preach. I mean, there's just no stopping the Holy Spirit from his plan. 
And the more resistance that comes against them, the more power is poured out. Verse 21. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. Now, they didn't know they were, they were released yet. Obviously, it was, it was an invisible escape. Because no one knows that they're not in their jail cell. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the door. So the guards didn't even know. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. See, it's really hard to have a trial without offender. Right? Really hard for them to pursue their plan if Peter and John are nowhere to be found. What are we going to do now? What? I mean, we're going to see at the end, but can you, can you imagine how frustrating for the leaders of Israel? I mean, they try and put Jesus to death. He raises from the dead. Right? He, he, he rouses up a whole gathering of people as he's alive on the earth before he ascends to heaven. Holy Spirit comes, oh, just fills the church with power. The same authority that was in Jesus and now given to the church. Signs and wonders and healings. They keep trying to contain it, and it just keeps getting worse for them. Verse 23. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Remember, the the people rejoiced in the gospel message. The people rejoiced in the good news of the forgiveness of sins and God's grace found in Jesus Christ. Those that were marginalized, pushed out, not good enough, broke too many laws, couldn't pay enough money to make it up for, they rejoiced in what was being preached. They rejoiced in the healing. So verse 27, having brought... The apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Remember when they gave that order? I believe it was back in Acts chapter 4. They said, we'll release you. When they flogged them, they released them. And then they said, but you can't teach any longer. That's what he's referring to. That you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. It's the same answer they gave them in Acts chapter 4. They're reminding them of the higher authority. See? They're reminding them of who is really in charge. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Okay, so I love, I love the twist in the story. I don't know if you picked it up, but, but here are the leaders bringing Peter and John to trial. And, and, and instead, when they're accused, they turn it and they, they put the leaders on trial, whom you crucified. I mean, how dare they put the leaders of Israel on trial in the high court? Things get turned around, right? 
And so, so far in our story, I want to stop and look at some things before we finish out the story. The first is this, that God is relentless about two things. I think we see this here. God is relentless about two things. That is his word, the gospel message, his truth, and his messenger, right? Look with me in the, in the importance and in the weight of his word. And slide, uh, we have a slide, Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See the, the importance, the eternal value of the word. God is relentless about it. He's also relentless about his messengers of the word. Look with me in Acts 7.52. This is going to be a, a quote from Stephen as he preaches. We'll look later into this more deeply, but right before he is, becomes the first martyr of the church. He says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Keep going. Oh. Sorry, I think the verse got cut off. Okay, there's a line in there, and I don't have it. Uh, wait, I think I have it in this note. It's really important that you hear that when that finishes out. Okay, whom you betrayed and murdered, you deliberately disobeyed God's law, though you received it from the hands of angels. So, so he's talking to the leader, Stephen, saying that what prophet did you not persecute Giving God's word, although you received it from the hands of angels, we know they received God's word through, through prophets, through messengers. The actual definition of an angel is a messenger, God's messenger. And so there's a correlation of, of God's angels being God's messengers, if you will. It's like a metaphor that these are very important because the word is so important. God is relentless about his messengers of his word. They are as of like angels to God. The key here is that we are all messengers of his word, see? I'm not just tooting my own horn up here, see? We are all priests, if you would. The, the Bible calls it the priesthood of believers. Can you go to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5? And look at the priesthood of believers showing that we're all messengers of God's word. Is that on there? Okay, let me give it right here. <clears throat> I believe I have it right here. Okay. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So as you come to Christ, as you put your faith in Christ, you are like living stones being built up into one house, being built up as the church. To be what? A holy priesthood. The whole church is a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we see that, that, that we're all messengers of the word. We're all called to give testimony to the word of God, to the gospel message. We're all called in some way, in some form, to do that. God assigns us different assignments, gives us different gifts to do it, but we're all priests. We're all God's angels. We're all God's messengers, if you will. Now, you may respond to me. You, you may say, but, uh, but we can't. I'm not trained. 
uh, I don't know how to do that. I didn't go to seminary. Well, first and foremost, you, if you've given your life to Christ and you've placed your faith in him, you have received the Holy Spirit. He is the teacher. And the teacher trains us, prompts us, leads us how to give witness to Christ. That's what he's always doing. If we see in the word that the Holy Spirit is always what? Lifting up, pointing to the name of Christ. The Holy Spirit wants to do the same in us. See? So, uh, for instance, in baptism. We had a baptism last week. I do now. Wait, you up? I know. <laughs> Poor guy. We had a beautiful baptism last week. Thank you, Judy, for opening up your home for that. It was lovely. Uh, when we're baptized, it's not only a declaration of, of, of our faith. It's not only a, a public decision that, that we have put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and that we want to start following Jesus in order to be right with God. It's not only that, but something mysterious happens in that sacrament. And, and it's almost as if you get a new vocation. In that baptism, we, we, we become baptized into a new career, if you will. Whereas your career before Christ becomes your job, and now your new career is to lift up and give witness to the name of Christ in your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, everywhere. This becomes your new vocation. We are baptized into it. We are all priests, if you will. And there's power in it. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Revelation 12:11. Let me read it for you. And they have conquered him. No, it's not, that one's not on the screen. You're good. And they have conquered, conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, they being the martyrs of the church. Listen to how they conquered the, the, the evil one, that Satan. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, claiming forgiveness for their sins through Christ, and, I love this, by the word of their testimony. See, there's something powerful when we give testimony to God at work in our lives. For they love not their lives even unto death. See, as priests, only two things are required of us. That we put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and we tell people about what God is doing in our life. We tell people about Jesus. Just what he's doing in our life. You don't have to tell about Jesus the way I would tell about Jesus. But you, what God wants you to do eventually is, and he'll train you up and build you up and give you divine opportunities to share what Jesus is doing in you. The difference it makes for you. You don't have to have a seminary degree for that. But that is the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. We are God's messengers. Now, when we do this, the enemy will flee. More and more he will attack, but he'll also flee. Do you know why? Because in Revelation it says they conquered the enemy. you know why he'll flee? Because he hates when glory is given to God. From the very beginning, that's what he's been after. Pride is his number one downfall. It, it, it is what caused the, the total rebellion of a third of the angels. He hates glory given to God. And when we tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives, the difference he's making in us, we give glory to God. We have to understand that we have a very real enemy, though. We have, we have a very real enemy when we come into the kingdom. Can you go back to the slide where... It says, don't think of Satan as a harmless, you see that? It's a, it's a quote by Billy Graham. Don't think of Satan as a harmless cartoon character with a red suit and a pitchfork. He is very clever and powerful, and his unchanging purpose is to defeat God's plans at every turn, including his plans for your life. 
We have a very real enemy that is out after us. See, it's not because we're so valuable, though. Let, let me just clarify. We're just the bait. See, we're, we're just the worm on the hook. What he's really trying to catch is God's glory. See, what he's really after is, is what is God doing in you and I that's going to give glory to God? And if he can destroy God's people's witness, he can steal God's glory. See, before Christ, we're not a threat. Why? God's not doing anything in our life. We're kind of on our own. No glory has been given to Christ. But when we come to Christ, and the Holy Spirit's given to us, and things start happening, our lives begin to change, and we know it, we can feel it, and we start just putting ourselves out there and telling people, glory is given to Jesus and we become dangerous. And all of a sudden, the enemy is out after us as never before. We have a very real enemy when we enter the kingdom of God. Because he wants that glory. He doesn't want us to glorify Christ in our lives. The first church experienced that, right? As they begin to grow and give glory to Christ, as they begin to thrive, the enemy comes against them more and more and more. In history, even until today, we have martyrs and resistance against the Christian church because the enemy is out after God's glory. Satan wants the church divided, disgraced, and destroyed. That's exactly his goal. And he'll do whatever it takes to do that. He has no manner. He has no socioeconomical lines. He is out to destroy our marriages, our families, our testimonies, our lives, so that glory cannot be given to Christ. He's a coward. He'll use everything and anything in your life. And you and I have a lot of weaknesses that he can use, unfortunately. He'll use everything and anything to keep us from being given glory to, to Christ. He'll especially kick us when we're down. How many of you have seen the movie Enough? It's an older movie of Jennifer Lopez about a woman who's uh, suffered domestic violence. There's a scene in that movie that, that just depicts the enemy to me. She's, she's actually training with a, with a trainer how to overcome her enemy, basically, how to overcome her ex-husband. And, and she's training how to fight. He's training her how to fight back, how to defend herself. And, and at some point in time, the part of the training is this, that that at some point in time, he's stronger than you. He's probably going to get you down on your back. Just be ready for that. And as sure as every coward will, he'll keep kicking you while you're down. But be ready for it. That's what he trains her to do. So like the enemy. There's going to be times in our life when we're just flat on our back. And the enemy's just going to keep kicking us and kicking us and kicking us. And the only hope for us to survive and get up and give glory to God in our lives is we have to be ready for it. We've got to know that's just what he does. We've got to know the tools that we use to counter that. As we look at the book of Acts and the church and all the attack the enemy brought onto the church, we see five, basically five general areas that the church was attacked. And they're listed in your note sheet just for you to have. Circumstances, society and culture, cynicism toward the Christian faith, hardships from inside the church, and our own immaturity. I think we expect the first three. I think we expect circumstances in this life 
at times to be difficult, come against our faith. I think we expect resistance from society and culture. We no longer fit in. We have different values and principles. I think we even expect cynicism towards the Christian faith. It's always been, it always will be until Christ returns. But I think the two are the most shocking, right? That we saw even in the early church that hardship from inside the church was also a way the enemy got in. The enemy doesn't just get in from the outside. He gets in from the inside, too. And they come from from inside the church, and they come from our own immaturity. Why would a church divide itself, right? Why would a church allow that? Jesus said, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. The New Living Translation says, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. See, a church is the family of God supporting each other for the mission of God. We can't afford unnecessary hardship. We already have the enemy coming at us at every angle. We need to make things better and easier for us, not harder. I don't know if you noticed, but look in, look in Acts 5.17 when we opened. as an insight into one of the main hardships that comes from within the church through the enemy. Then the high priest and all his associates and members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with what? Jealousy. Jealousy. It's such a part of our human nature, but it doesn't belong in God's kingdom. The leaders were jealous over the authority, remember, of, the, of, the, of Peter and John and, and the disciples. They were the spiritual leaders, and they banked their authority on their superiority. And all of a sudden, by Acts chapter 5, we find that all their authority is being diminished. And instead, the authority of God, the spiritual power, is now being poured on on those who obey the Holy Spirit. And they are mad because they're jealous. Remember verse 16, the crowds are gathering. They're looking for the wrong things. They have the wrong motive to begin with. And it causes them to be jealous. Jealousy comes from our own immaturity, right? Jealousy was unnecessary in the church, and it's actually what divided the church in the beginning. Remember that Christianity was not a separate sect. Remember at this time it's still part of Judaism. It's still forming. And the first division is made in the church. The first church split is based on jealousy. That's how big a deal it is. The leaders were too jealous and too zealous for pride and power that they wouldn't open their hearts to the gospel message. They wouldn't bow to the Holy Spirit being of higher authority than them. And it split the church from the very beginning. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's ugly. I don't know if you've been around people that are jealous. It's an ugly way to live, and it causes so much pain, unnecessary pain. It also causes pain when the person is jealous, right? Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. How sad in God's church, where love is the premise of everything, that we would experience this kind of jealousy in church history. We know it. We've seen it. It's in our churches everywhere. It goes back to our roots, and it causes nothing but division and dissensions 
and resistance against the Holy Spirit and all that he's trying to do. When it comes to our immaturities, we're, we're not, we don't always struggle with jealousy, but we, we, then, we need a healthy self-criticism, if you will, to help guard ourselves from the wrong attitudes. We need a healthy self-criticism. These, are, these come from our immaturities. We all have them. We all have blind spots. We all have things we struggle with. We all have our own opinions. We, we, all, we all have them. And so what is required of a healthy church or a healthy Christian is that we have a healthy self-criticism. Now, it, it's not to beat yourself down. It's not a low self-esteem. But, but it's, it's to be aware of what God is trying to work on in you and to walk in humility instead of like the, the counsel, instead of pride. Acts 20, 28 says, Keep watch over your flocks and yourselves. Now, we may not have flocks. We have families. We have marriages. We have children. We have a church. Keep watch over what you are responsible for, is what the Apostle Paul is saying, what Luke is writing. And yourself, which means you are responsible for yourself before God. Keep watch over that. Don't just watch it over everybody else, right? Remember the, the, the Beatitudes, you know, Jesus said, you know, why, you, why, you, why do you uh, put a stick in, in your neighbor's eye when there's a log sticking out of yours, right? That's exactly the point. Why do we do that? Well, let me explain to you. Living honestly with God and with ourselves is hard. The easier way is not to. The easier way is not to examine ourselves. Because it's very painful. It's very personal. All of your thoughts and, and my thoughts, they all come from a very personal place. They come from personal experience. They come from personal education. They come from uh, personal hurt. And so we're very guarded with it. It, it. It's like we've been defined by these personal things about us. And so, so when we come into a church setting, this, this is our truth. And, and usually our truth is, is, is a, a, a result of some pain. Some process, if you will. It's our truth. But what God wants us to examine ourselves with is not our truth, but the truth. See? There's a difference. I believe that God meets us in our truth. Like, I have found many blind spots that God meets me in. He validates why I feel that way. He validates why I think that way. He, he understands me perfectly. That's His grace. But He doesn't want to leave me there. He wants me to grow out of this partial truth, this half-truth, this bias, this half-knowledge, and he wants me to grow more fully into the truth, his truth. That's how we become new creations more and more in Christ. That's how we get away from ourselves and we become into the reality of what really is. That's how we grow with a healthy church, but we have to have this healthy self-criticism, if you will. David said it this way, Psalm 139:23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I believe we have Psalm 26:10. Do we, Dennis, on the slide there? Their hands are dirty with evil schemes, and they constantly take bribes. Keep, keep going. Oh, nope. Sorry, they don't have the rest of the verse. Okay, forget that. Basically, it's another self-examination verse. It's it's. It's, it's an ouch. It's, it's really an ouch. It's a, it's, ow, examine my heart. That's going to hurt a little bit. To walk humbly hurts. It means that we have to acknowledge that we come 
with partial truth. Some areas we have full truth we've grown into. Some areas we have partial truth. Other areas we have no truth. We don't know what's going on. And if we walk in the door and in our relationships and in our marriages and our families as if we know it all and our truth is the truth, there's going to be nothing but a competition of views. That's why the, the, the covenant, one of the, the first affirmation is the centrality of the word. Because that unifies us and it shapes us and we begin to let go of our old ways of thinking and we become more centered together on the truth and we stop competing for all of our truth. These are the immaturities that often lead us to dissension and destruction in the church. This is also why we have to cultivate a culture of grace and truth in the church. See, the problem is you and I can't face ourselves unless we feel safe enough to. See, if we don't feel fully loved, we are not going to take the risk and put ourselves out there and humble ourselves and say, you know, I'm really kind of messed up in this area. I'm not sure I, I got this one, but this is what I think. But if we don't have a safe place of grace, we're not going to be willing to do it. We're, our, our human nature is we're just going to be defensive because we're hurting. We're scared. We're being attacked. There's no room for us. We're not unconditionally loved. What does the scripture tell us that Jesus brought us what? What, what did he tell, brought us? Grace and truth, right? Jesus brings us most. John 1.17, both. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. See? And in a church of all places, this is what I love about the church. This should be the one place that you could be yourself. Because there's really no other place besides your home, probably with your family, if you have a healthy family. There's really no other place in this world that you can totally be accepted and loved without performance, even in your failings. This should be the one place where every person receives unconditional love. And in that place of grace, they have a chance, we have a chance to change. We have a chance to examine ourselves. We have a chance to grow out of our old paradigms from hurt, from pain, from life, from all the different things that defined us. In this place of grace, we have a chance to become the new creations that we are in Christ. That's what gives glory to God as the world looks at a church filled with people, all different kinds of people loving each other, and those people's lives are being changed because there's enough grace to be able to face the real truth about ourselves, and about God. That's what we need. Let's finish out our story. Let's pick it out in verse, pick it up in verse 30, 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. 
I know, Charlene's like, wow, that's pretty wise, right? There's some real wisdom there. Now, here's the thing. It's not a real faith-filled response. It's not like he really believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's saying, if it's of men, it'll just fizzle out. His argument is more of a wisdom would say, as we look back on other revolts and uprisings, if it's of men, it's just going to fizzle out. Why bring on unnecessary hardship to the church? Let's just wait and see what happens. Because if it's not of God, it'll fizzle out. But if it's of God, you might as well not fight against it either. Because it's going to be unstoppable. It's just logic. But as I look and I think of Gamaliel's logic, and I think of all the hardship that has come in the church, not only from the outside that we expect, but the inside of the church, I think there's good logic there, right? That, that if you're, I learned this way back early on. I remember Pastor Larry teaching us that way back early on, that if you're in a church outside of, outside of the church doing something that is clearly against Scripture, okay? But if you're in a church that is just going in a different direction than you, than you like, different music, different color paint, different style, you know, all the silly issues that, you know, really churches have divided over, okay? Whatever it is, if you're in a church, as long as there's not heresy going on, now, in this situation, there was no heresy, by the way, what did Peter and John keep doing? They kept pointing back to Scripture. It was heresy. It was no problem. The leaders could have just had them stoned. But they couldn't do it because there was no heresy. Just rivaling their pride, jealousy. When you're in a church that is getting to you like that, it's probably better you just leave. If you can't let it go, don't stay and just cause dissension. Because it brings what, again, we'll say, unnecessary hardship to the church. Because if it's of man, it'll just fizzle out anyway. So if you can let it go and just wait and see, great. But if you can't let it go, just move on. Let God deal with it, see? That's what Gamaliel said. He just let God have these preachers. He let God show who was really of the way of the Lord. It's good wisdom for us as we look at the hardships that the churches come against. And what we have to understand, too, is that Satan always shoots himself in the foot. See, we can let God take care of it. We can let it go and move on. We can even wait and see because every resistance against the gospel in us that we're about comes with more and more power from the Lord being poured out on us. Satan always shoots himself in the foot. It's our favorite thing. When we're going through a hard time, when we feel resistance, we get down on our knees, we ask the Lord, what are you trying to show us, teach us? And then we say, and remember, Satan always shoots himself in the foot. The Lord's going to strengthen us through this. That's our hope and our encouragement. That's exactly what happened. We close off our story in verse 40. His speech persuaded them, They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. See, it actually strengthened them. And so as we close out our sermon, as we look at the so what, 
we want to ask ourselves, how do we become more than conquerors in our trials? How do we be like them? How, how, do, we, how do we work in such a way that Satan actually is shooting himself in the foot when we, when we experience resistance and oppositions and persecutions? There's a rhythm that I find. It's a rhythm of location, dislocation, and relocation. And it's simply this, that when we put our faith in Christ, we have a new location. It's a new vocation. It's we orient ourselves that we are in Christ. And as we grow, we become a new location too. We, we start to see things differently. We get a new perspective. We start growing in Christ. We become that new creation. It's this new location, if you will. It's exciting. It's the happy part. Those are the good parts when you're on the top of the mountain. But in this life, what comes out the top of the mountain is every valley, right? And that's the dislocation. And the 3,000 new Christians experienced that they found themselves all of a sudden in this dislocated place. See? Perhaps wondering why would God allow for such persecution when they're trusting in him? Perhaps feeling betrayed? Perhaps feeling angry at God? Not understanding, maybe feeling lost, like, I thought this was the truth. I, I thought we were doing good, and then all of a sudden we got the leaders of Israel coming against us. What's happening? It's a dislocating kind of feeling, disoriented feeling. What we have to understand is that the dislocation actually reminds us of what the real relocation is all about. See, It actually relocates us. It actually brings to us an eternal perspective that we couldn't have gotten if we just would have stayed the same. It reminds us that we are not created for this life alone. It reminds us when we're feeling lost and this life has disappointed us and we're hurting and we don't know where God is. It reminds us that this life is not it. That it's not just about this life, but it's about the next. The dislocation brings us an eternal perspective that helps us through our loss and our suffering and our, our pain. And it helps us to be bold witnesses of Christ. Remember back at the end of chapter 4 or so when, when the church prayed for Peter and John that they would be bold in their preaching? Do you notice that, that they didn't pray for safety? Do you notice they didn't pray for, for, for well-being, for resources, for wealth, for programs? They, they didn't pray for a new church. What, what did they pray? They prayed that they would be bold. That can only be prayed from a, a relocated place, right? When you're under persecution and the fear of your very life and your loved one's life, you can only pray for boldness as the Lord brings you through a, to a relocated kind of orientation, an eternal perspective. It reminds us of what really matters. And it gives us hope beyond this life as well. I think of the early Christians who suffered in the Colosseum in Rome, who were ravaged by wild animals, right? And people would look on, and, and it was sport to people. And I think, how did they do it? How did they bring their children with them into the Colosseum? How did they remain faithful? How did they remain bold in their witness? And I asked, could I do it? Could I die to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? And then I'm reminded how much I need the Holy Spirit to relocate me, to remind me of what really matters. 
and give me that boldness that I need. That's what God is trying to do in each and every one of us. Our daily bread says those early Christians lied on the threshold of heaven within a heartbeat of home, no possessions to hold them back. See, what God is doing in the early church is God is doing with us now. He wants us to live within a heartbeat of home. Because everything else is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at the hardships of the early church, when we think of the hardships in our own life today, the loss, the grief, the disappointment, the anger, feeling betrayed even by you at times, Lord. We thank you that you honor our truth. Even though it's not the truth, you, you understand us. You are the tender, good shepherd that knows why we feel what we feel. And yet we thank you that our truth is not the end. We thank you that you have brought us the truth to relocate us, give us strength and boldness in times of hardship, trials, and even persecution. And so, Lord, as a church, as Oak Hills Church, we pray with one voice. We ask not for riches or the things of this world, but we pray that you would make us bold in our witness. Only your Holy Spirit can do that. Help us to fully cooperate with you and examine our lives that you may do your good work in us. We pray now for this offering, Lord, as we take it, that it would be blessed by your supernatural authority. May your gospel would reign supreme here and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name.